Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and we have an exceptionally special show for you all today. I am thrilled to say that I have with me a violinist, an author, a screenwriter, so many accomplishments. Erica Miner, thank you so much for joining us today on Opera for Everyone. Thank you, Pat, for the opportunity. I'm delighted to be here. Well, Erica, here in the fall of 2022, has just released a book, which I can tell you I read and loved. It's a murder mystery set in an opera house based on Erica's extensive knowledge of opera houses. Erica, tell us about this book, Aria for Murder. First of all, it takes place at the Metropolitan Opera, where I was a violinist for 21 years. Yes. So knowing every little back hallway and stairway and hidden places in the Met, and uh, a few nefarious things that went on while I was there, I was mm. suddenly inspired to take those experiences, combine them with my wicked imagination, <laughs> and create a mystery novel that takes place at the Met. And it, it's a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to do. It was hard work, too, because mystery genre is difficult. But it gave me an opportunity to kill off all the people who made my life miserable. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I guess that's what you can do with fiction, right? <laughs> yes, you can. Never cross an author because they'll kill you off in their next book. Right? Oh, my goodness. Well, and I understand Aria for Murder is the first in the Julia Kogan opera mystery series. She's the the main character in this book, and, and we're going to hear more from her later in other books, too. Yes, as a matter of fact, of course, they say, write what you know. And so mm -hmm. I based Julia on myself when I first started out. I was in my 20s when I started out at the Met, and uh, I had a lot to learn. And she is a neophyte, and she's had quite a sheltered life, and she has a lot to learn as well. So there are a lot of uh, parallels between me and Julia, but of course, I like to say that she's a lot braver than I ever could be. It was interesting how I came up with the name. Julia Kogan? Yeah. So Julia is the daughter of um, my best friend in the Met Forest, oh. Connie Green. And Kogan is the name of one of my favorite violinists, Lainey Kogan. So... I combined the two and voila, we have a Julia Kogan as the protagonist and she appears as the main character in what is so far three books in the series, it's, uh, Aria for Murder and two sequels so far. And those each take place in different opera houses, I understand. They do. And that it was fun how I got that because after writing the first one, it's kind of a long story, but the series was published before, and then the third one came out during the pandemic, and it didn't reach print. So mm. I found another publisher. So it's being republished with new titles, new covers, new beginnings, new plot points, updates, all the things that have changed over the past few years since I wrote the original. And so uh, it's been quite a process. It's been an interesting and fascinating way to go about publishing a series. Mm. After I published the original first book in the series, one of my readers said, well, what about a sequel? And I honestly hadn't thought about it. And then he said, <laughs> well, you should write a sequel and set it at Santa Fe Opera because Santa Fe is so unique. Yes. And I 
absolutely thought that was the greatest idea ever. And I had friends who worked at the opera house. So I was able to go there and do research and get into the backstage and the nitty gritty of that. And while I was in Santa Fe during that research, somebody, a friend of mine from San Francisco opera happened to be there. And he <laughs> said, well, why don't you write another sequel after this and set it at San Francisco opera? And mm. so I said, well, why not? I have a history with that company too. So it turned out to be those three, the Met, Santa Fe, and San Francisco. Coming after that, God willing, there will be two more at two different opera houses. So, Do you want to give us any clues which opera houses those well, might be? Sure. So <laughs> the, the next one is San Diego because I promised them as well. I spent many years mm -hmm. uh, in San Diego and uh, being a friend of, of the San Diego Opera, which almost went under in 2014. So as an arts journalist, I made sure that I was right there at the front lines fighting for that opera house yeah. to remain open. So um, there's a great deal of affinity there. So the next one, the plan is to do San Diego Opera and end with Seattle Opera, which is where I'm living now. Oh, spectacular. I, I mean, this can go on and on. It could, yeah. You could because, even go to a different continent, I imagine. Well, <laughs> yeah. Actually, somebody suggested, well, what about Paris Opera? And I'm like, <sighs> well, uh, okay. <laughs> that would work. Shades of Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> Phantom of the Opera and, you know, a French husband and all that kind of good stuff. Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. I, it's, I mean, there's so much here. One of the things that I love about the book Aria for Murder is that it's a good, it's just flat out a good mystery story. But for people who have any level of interest in opera, and again, I'm speaking as a not someone involved in making it, it, it takes you into the heads of people who are part of creating these amazing works of art. It takes you into a workplace where you get a little sense of the dynamics between the various people. It's, oh, and, and the chapters are not long. At the beginning of each chapter, Erica, you have put a quote from various operas. Each chapter will have this wonderful piece in the original language and then with the English translation, and it'll tell us which opera, the composer of the opera, and which act. It doesn't tell us necessarily which character is saying it, if you're familiar with the operas. It's just like a little little puzzle, a little fun little treat in the beginning of each chapter, which I have had so much fun spending time thinking, which character was that? <laughs> well, it was great fun for me because I just made a list and put it in a number of different files of all the quotes that I thought would be relevant for the story overall. And then I had the chance to choose which quote would go in front of which chapter, not mm. to give too much of a hint, but a little bit of a hint about either what just happened or what's about to happen. Because after all, opera imitates life. Yes. Opera is full of murder and assassination and all these nefarious things going on. So of course, the quotes from the opera can reflect what's going on in the story. And I thought it's a, it's a match made in heaven. Yeah. Totally. Well, we've said before on Opera for Everyone, one of the things I've said it, other people have said it, one of the great things about opera is how it's this art form that combines 
so many art forms, so many elements, costume, dance, instrumental music, singing, the uh, poetry of the libretto. It's just, it's all of these things. And you've, you've embraced them all and you've, you've kind of taken it and put it into this other genre, which is just, it's fabulous. You're also a screenwriter and there's no doubt that this book is incredibly cinematic. It, I had the pictures and, and even the score playing in my head as I was reading parts of it. it would, it's just magnificent. Thank you. I, I feel the same way when I was writing it. It was like everything was kind of running along in, in front of my eyes, you know, my mind's eye as I was writing. I'm like, I can really see this happening. So I think it would be, um, especially since it's now a series, I think it would be great either as each book as a movie or even like a Netflix or Amazon series with episodes, however many of each book in each season. So yeah, it does have those possibilities. And, and I mean, how much more dramatic can you get than what goes on, not only on stage, but behind the scenes. And that mm. is really the reason I started writing these books, because most people don't see beyond the crystal chandeliers and the golden curtain. So my purpose was to show what goes on, an insider's perspective of what goes on behind that golden curtain when you've got a thousand people <laughs> all working at mostly at odds with each other most of the time. The conflict backstage is even more than it is on stage. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, it definitely is. I, yeah, well, I'll tell you stories. But yeah, I oh, mean, here, here's an example. So my description of the Met Orchestra Mm. is 100 neurotic musicians thrown together in a hole in the ground with no air and no light, seven days a week, days, nights, and weekends. Uh, pretty soon, at one point, someone's going to want to kill someone. There you have it. A yeah. murder mystery. <laughs> or more. Too. You too. You, well, we have it. An aria for murder, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting, because depending on where you're sitting in the opera house, sometimes you can get a little peek into the orchestra pit, you know, that little bit that's seen, but it does, it does look a little close in there sometimes. Oh, yes, especially when you're talking about Wagner and Strauss operas. Yes, the number of musicians packed uh, into that area. Yeah, it gets too close for comfort, and especially in the string section, where you have two people sharing a music stand, whereas right. with wind and brass, you have individual. So, you know, you get into conflicts even over turning pages. You wouldn't believe what goes on. But mostly we do rotate, but there are certain people that you sit with more time than any other. And that's hard because think about a rehearsal for a Wagner opera. It goes on and on and on. Yeah. And you're sitting with that person day after day after day. You get to know things about each other you don't even want to know. Sure. And sooner or later, it's like, I can't stand your perfume or what kind of soap did you use this morning? Whatever it was oh. that starts grating on your nerves. And then the next thing you know, you're trying to produce, create music. And at the Met, you have to be perfect all the time. And then yeah. you have this person sitting next to you who you had an argument with just before you sat down. So yeah, very close quarters. Yeah. Oh, I, I can only imagine. Well, so speaking of the violinist in the orchestra pit, our main character here in your book, Aria for Murder, Julia Kogan, you said she has a certain amount of characteristics taken from your young life as a, 
as a violinist starting out at the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Could you read something from your book which would give us a sense of Julia and who she is as a person? Who's going to be our guide through this story or our person that we're identifying with and worrying about? Well, absolutely. I think chapter one, where we introduce Julia, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of an excerpt, and you can extract from that a lot about her characteristics and personality. So chapter one starts with a quote from Act Two of Puccini's Tosca. Quando hai benato anima mia, how you have suffered, oh my soul. Julia threaded her way through the waiting crowds of patrons in front of the Metropolitan Opera House, her violin case strapped to her shoulder. She stopped for a moment to gaze wide-eyed at the parade of celebrities being disgorged from their limos onto Lincoln Plaza and the paparazzi jostling each other to capture the ultimate photograph. I can't believe I'm here. As she approached the front entrance of the Met, Julia glimpsed the street violinist in his usual location giving a passionate rendition of the fiendish showpiece, Die Goynerweisen. Despite his brilliant playing, he was ignored by the throng. He deserved something for his efforts. She watched for a moment. Then she opened her violin case, extracted her violin and bow, and started to accompany him. Passersby began to stop and listen and toss bills into the violinist's open case. Julia and the violinist exchanged smiles. Then she packed up her violin and moved on. How lucky am I to have a real job with a weekly paycheck? This evening, the night of her first performance as a violinist with the Met Orchestra, Julia was seized by the desire to enter the opera house through the front doors on Lincoln Center Plaza, rather than the stage door artist's entrance toward the rear of the theater. The revolving glass doors overlooking the plaza afforded a much more elegant entrance, and she desperately wanted to be among the opening night glitterati. No stage door tonight. I go in with the paying customers. I, I love that image, both going in through the main doors, but the image of her pulling out her violin to accompany the street violinist who's there and being ignored, and she draws attention to him. It's just this beautiful moment of her doing what she can. And I just, I can't. I appreciate you trying to put us in her shoes, and, and I'm sure you can imagine her shoes, but you know, most of us couldn't dream of having the kind of talent it would take to do what she's doing. She's, she's quite a character in this story. I, I really found myself growing quite fond of her and the people that she was close to as well. Thank you. I've gotten a lot of similar comments from people who are quite smitten with her character, and also the fact that she has what they call a character arc that mm. expands and grows, and she grows during the story where she starts off very naive. She's a neophyte. She wants to please everyone. And then things happen to her that are out of her control. And eventually she realizes that she has to come out of her shell and jump to and, and be up to the task ahead of her. So I had a lot of fun creating that arc for her as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, this is where we meet her as she's about to do her first performance opening night with all the glitterati and the limousines and everything. But as the book goes on, we get a little backstory of how she came to this position, how she got there, a little bit about her family, a little bit about the training and the mentorship. Could you 
tell us a little bit about your own journey becoming a violinist and entering the orchestra at the New York Metropolitan Opera. Well, my journey has a lot of parallels to Julia's journey. First of all, that her father is her first violin teacher. My father was also my first violin teacher. Oh, wow. Uh, her father goes to all of her lessons with her. My father always did the same to all of my junior orchestra rehearsals, all of those things that uh, I was growing up with. So I infused a lot of that into Julia's character. And also that I wanted to show the importance of mentorship. Mm. It's for everybody. It doesn't matter what you do. Most people are lucky enough to have a mentor who believes in them and guides them. And I also had a mentor like that. And so I wanted to show the conductor, Abel, as her mentor who recognizes her talent and guides her. So a lot of that has happened to me as I was a fledgling violinist and as I grew into it and started getting serious about it. Uh, I was able to have a wonderful violin teacher when I went to study in Boston, Joseph Silverstein, who was the concertmaster of the Boston Symphony at that time. He totally believed in me whenever I had doubts. You know, he told me what was wrong, but he also told me what I was doing well. And that's important too. You need to not just criticism, you need to know that you're getting some of it right anyway. So yeah. there are a lot of scenes in the book where uh, Julia is being coached by Abel and he's guiding her and he's the wise, older and extremely brilliant genius of a musician who guides her and helps her find her way. So a lot of that is, is parallel with my life. Although I like to say that even though there are characteristics that I have in common with Julia, I could never be as brave as she is. Well, yeah, she, she has in, endured a lot in her life before we meet her walking in those front doors. But what happens after we meet her? Oh my, she is brave. Oh and, and I'm glad to hear that she develops as a character in the books that are yet to come out. Because how could you not going through so many things? And, and obviously, you've told us already she's going to end up in other locations as well, in other opera houses. So of course, she's going to gain from all of those experiences. Also, you mention her training at Juilliard and that you have Itzhak Perlman being one of her instructors. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case for you, was it, by chance? That was not. I was too chicken to go to Juilliard and go to New York when I was 17. I just couldn't handle it. I knew I needed a more intimate place. And so I chose Boston. And also because of Silverstein, who's just one of the greatest teachers of all time. So no, um, I, New York frightened me. I didn't think I could handle it, at least not at that age. Well, you so got there. <laughs> I, I eventually got there, but uh, it took me a few years of growing as, you know, as a baby violinist in the New England Conservatory and with that teacher to get me to the point where I could go off to New York and, and make my own way. Well, Erica, because we like to play some music here on Opera for Everyone, I want to take advantage of a clip that you were kind enough to send me of you playing violin. Can I just have you introduce this piece to us? Well, this is uh, the third movement of Mozart's Violin Sonata in B-flat major, Kirschel 378, one of my favorite pieces. Very, very charming. This is what I played on my last solo recital, which was at Bard College 
which is about an hour north of New York. Uh, and my pianist was Celia Kahan, who was one of, one of the most well-known accompanists in New York City. So uh, we made beautiful music together on this <laughs> recital. And I chose the Mozart because Mozart, after all, was arguably the greatest opera composer of all time. So this is a third movement of B-flat major sonata by Mozart. Mozart, huh? Oh. Mozart, huh? He's in a class by himself. 
It does seem that way. Yeah. If in doubt, if you want something fabulous to listen to, pull up some Mozart and you're in, you're in good shape. And that was so beautiful to get to hear your own violin playing. So I'm so glad you had that recording. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Very much, very much. Well, I'd like to now go back to one of the comments you made earlier about all the people backstage, all the people who, who work to create these operas that we so enjoy watching, and you saying that all these people cram together in a comparatively small space. Things can happen, nefarious things can happen backstage, on stage. Does that make you think of any events that you witnessed in your time? Oh, absolutely. Where to begin? Uh, well, I'm going to let you pick that. <laughs> all right. Well, then I'll start with the most dramatic one of all. Ooh. Happened during a performance of uh, Janacek's The Macropolis Case, which I think it was the premiere that had not been performed at the Met before, and we were doing it in English. And I think it was Jesse Norman as the main character, Emilia Marti, who is 300 years old. Long story. Oh, um, now that's a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. But um, actually, this did not involve Jesse. This involved one of the Compromario tenors in the first scene of Wait, the opera. Could, yes. May I stop you? Could I yes. have you explain what a Compromario is? Oh, sure. Yes, I had to do that in the book. <laughs> a Compromario is a singer who sings minority, I like to call them roles, not the lead tenor, but not chorus. So they sing a solo, but they're usually very limited amount of roles. They don't get star billing. They're kind of the utility solo singers. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds like uh, the analogy in a film would be like a supporting player. Yeah. A supporting a actor. Supporting, supporting actor, but may maybe even less. I think in an opera, you've got a number of supporting characters who are still singing major solo roles. Campo mm. Mario is another echelon below that. Okay. All right. So a Compromario tenor in the Macropolis case. Compromario tenor. So he wasn't the lead tenor, not the most important tenor, but the director, and I'm, I'm happy to say I don't remember who the director was, had this poor guy standing at the top of a 20-foot ladder on the stage. So if you can imagine, the Met stage is already however many feet high, yeah. 20 feet above that, and singing at the same time. So, I'm getting nervous and, already. Yeah. Plus, yeah, this is the kind of thing you can't make up. Plus, the guy was afraid of heights. So, yeah, it was disaster waiting to happen. What we didn't know was that he also had a heart condition. So, and it didn't happen during rehearsal. No, it had to happen at the very first opening performance of the opera. He was standing at the top of this ladder. He started to sing. Then he collapsed and plunged to the stage. And, oh, no. Yeah, and died. So, but the kicker is what he was singing when he collapsed, and I'm not making this up, was you can only live so long. Can you imagine? He sings those words, and then no. he collapses. And it was on no. front page news on all the newspapers the next morning. That, wow. I mean, is enough to send an entire orchestra into therapy for who knows how long. Yeah. Really? Yeah. A phrase which gets used in your book as well, going Indeed. into therapy. Well, yeah. Oh, that, that, how horrible. Yeah, no, you can't make this stuff up. That's why opera is unlike any, any other art form, because 
things happen spontaneously that you cannot expect or predict. Yeah, live theater. Mm. Yep. So have times changed? Are there safeguards in place for people in precarious positions? Because I sometimes see things on stage and and get worried for the individual, you know, when they're on a parapet or a, a balcony or whatever, that it, it's frightening. It can be frightening. It can be. There was that famous production of The Ring with the Valkyrie that had these rolling kind of mechanical things going on that everybody was afraid someone was going to trip over or get caught in and get hurt. And in fact, it did happen. So you have things on stage that are dangerous that they then hopefully will change. But I can give you another example. We were doing Wagner's Götterdämmerung and mm. the great, great Wagnerian soprano Hildegard Behrens was singing Brunhilde and she was singing the immolation scene. And at the end of the immolation scene, Valhalla collapses. Right. Well, unfortunately, somebody, we never found out exactly who, it was someone who was in charge of making the set collapse. They pushed the button like one or two seconds too soon. Oh. And it started, it collapsed on her. Yeah. So this, just sitting in the pit, hearing her screams, it was absolutely terrifying. She never sang at the Met after that because, of course, she was, I mean, it was someone else's fault. I'm sure heads rolled after that. But yeah, this is the kind of thing <laughs> that can happen when you've got sets that are complicated and very often heavy, although for the most part, they're made of materials that look like the real thing, but aren't. Right. But even so, something like that, I can't imagine what she must have been going through at that moment, except for the fact that the screams, you could hear it all the way into the pit. So, Oh, that would be yeah. just, just bone chilling. And may I ask, was she all right at the end of that when they unburied her? She was okay. I think she was injured, but not seriously. I mean, not like, it wasn't life-threatening, but, you know, it was, the fright alone would be enough. But yeah, she definitely had some injuries. They never told us exactly what, but all, all they told us was she said at that point that she would never sing at the Met again, and she didn't. But uh, Can't blame her. But to give you an example then of something that can happen to someone in the pit from the stage. Something from the stage falls into the pit? Exactly, exactly. We were doing uh, Smetna's The Bartered Bride, and the set designer was not thinking. And we were all kind of wary of the fact that they had put these lanterns, these glass lanterns, all around the apron of the oh, I'm getting nervous now. Yeah. <laughs> and there was ballet going on. Mm -hmm. So disaster waiting to happen. And sure enough, during one of the performances... One of the dancers got too close to the lantern, kicked it over, and it fell on top of the bassoon player's head. Oh, no. Yeah, and, and shattered. I mean, you know, it's dangerous. It's well, you dangerous, are just you know, an opera house corralled in, right there with the stage right above you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it just goes to show that an opera house is a dangerous place. A theater, not just opera house, a theater in general. Stuff can yeah. happen. Yeah. So. Uh, ever, after that, everybody was saying that we should get hazard pay, but um, you know, but things, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, things come flying <laughs> off the stage, and 
anything can happen. So yeah, but it makes for interesting copy. <laughs> yeah, well, it gave you a lot of material to ponder as you're creating these stories about about people who are working back there. Because again, even the Met, which I mean, is it the world's biggest opera house physically? It is. I think it is. Even so, the 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 backstage sections can be, as I understand it, parts of them anyway, little tunnels and small areas to navigate back there and I imagine possibly get lost. Because one of the characters talks about in your book about uh, he couldn't have done it without a guide getting from place A to place B. Yeah, it's uh, the place is huge and the backstage is dark. I mean, mm. especially when a performance is going on, but in general, it's dark back there. So you kind of have to be really careful navigating when you're when you're back there, and we used to a lot of the orchestra people I know that I did, as Julia does in the book, likes to stand back there as long as she's very careful to be out of the way of the stagehands, and just see what goes on. It's amazing mm-hmm. all of the things that have to fall into place backstage with the stage managers and the monitors and the stagehands and all of that in order for an opera behind that curtain, in front of the curtain. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's more complicated than people can imagine. There's a, I, I mean, I, you can guess that it's complicated, but until you actually see what's going on, you don't fully understand all of that. But your book does a, a fun job of integrating, at various places throughout the entire book, little glimpses into the life of the backstage. One of the things that you just referred to about Julia wanting to watch, as you did, from backstage, but staying out of the way of the stagehands. I thought it was very interesting that at various moments how you talked about these different categories of employees, workers, in the opera business back there, and how there's a certain amount of allowable mixing, but there's also a pretty bright line between different levels or different tasks that people are doing. The stagehands, for example, were not happy necessarily when somebody from another piece of the, of the opera would show up in their realm. There's a certain amount of truth to that. And of course, in fiction, you can exaggerate right. uh, for effect, which is uh, what I did in many cases. But there's a definite hierarchy when it comes to stagehands, the head stagehands, the electricians. There are all these different categories within that hierarchy. And a lot of it also has to do with seniority, who's been there the longest. It's quite fascinating. And it's, there's a parallel also in the orchestra as far as the first, first violinist, the concertmaster, the mm. most important person. And then you have a hierarchy within the violin sections, who are mm-hmm. the people who sit right behind the concertmaster most of the time, although in rotation, we all get a chance to do that. And those of us at the back of the bus often joke about the fact, well, we're back here. It's harder for us to see, but the back of the bus will get there eventually. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's kind of fun to divide those kind of different levels and echelons of people within the orchestra. And I'm sure it's the same within the chorus as well. Each separate entity within the opera house has its own hierarchy and it, it's reflected in how people relate to each other. So I find that really fascinating to write about because it shows what kind of personalities all 
differing in so many ways that it takes to produce an opera and the kind of conflicts that go on. And of course, mystery and drama is all about conflict. Of course, of course. Well, on the opposite side from conflict, I, I remember one of the things that was in the book was about how people could not come to the Met as a married couple. And while it was maybe better, I think this is how you wrote it, it'd be better if they didn't uh, get romantically involved with other members of the company. It certainly happened, but it would typically happened, you wrote, between people of the same area. Like singers might be romantically involved or marry singers, or an orchestra members might marry another orchestra member. And it only occasionally would, would someone cross a line into one of those other areas. And I thought that was a very interesting comment. And, and only in the cafeteria was a place for people to actually mingle and meet of, from different groupings. Well, there's a reason for that. As far as from Julia and my perspectives, the orchestra has its own separate level, which is one level below stage level. Stage level oh. is where all of the artists' dressing rooms are, and of course, the stage itself. And beyond that, if you go one level down, you've got the orchestra pit, the orchestra dressing rooms. And before they built the cafeteria, that cafeteria wasn't always there. When I first got to the Met, if you needed, you know, a cup of coffee, you had to go up to stage level where they had a very small concession where you could get something to drink or whatever it mm. was. Then every once in a while, you would encounter somebody who was a solo singer, for instance. I had a number of encounters back there with Domingo at, at mm -hmm. one point and various other singers. But mostly, we were very separate, and those are not only physically, but also symbolically separate, that the orchestra is kind of an entity on its own. So after they built the cafeteria, which is on orchestra level uh, at the other side, if you go through a tunnel, a very low tunnel, or you have to kind of stoop down if you're tall, you get to the cafeteria, and then all of a sudden, you started meeting people from other parts of the company, solo mm. singers, chorus people, stagehands, everybody went there because you get very long hours rehearsing, especially, yeah. or during a six-hour opera, you've got to have something to eat or drink at some point. Yes. So it was a, really a great thing that they built that cafeteria, but it also gave people like me, who spent 99% of their time on pit level, to get to meet some of the other people, although we did that on tour, when we were on tour. Then, of course, everybody was mingling together. But those opera houses were much smaller than the Met. The Met is just so huge mm -hmm. that you don't get a chance to meet other people until everybody comes to the cafeteria. And then it gets really interesting from there. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. So a couple of questions popped into my head as you were speaking. One is the concert master. Could you describe for us who don't live in an orchestra, what is a concert master and what is that person's responsibilities and relationship to the other members of the orchestra? The concert master or concert mistress, as the case may be, is the most important person in the orchestra. He or she is the first of the first violinists. So in other words, leader of the first violin section, but leader of all the violin sections, and in many ways, leader of the entire orchestra. The conductor depends 
so much on the concertmaster to help keep things together. Because when you think about it, conductor has to conduct the orchestra, but also the stage. Mm. The singers, the actors, all of that is going on at once. So it's a concertmaster who has to be, and by the way, I have to say that I was lucky enough to be at the Met when the one who I consider the greatest concertmaster of all time, Raymond Yevick, was concertmaster. And Ray was extraordinary, not only as a violinist, both as an orchestra player and as a soloist, but as a leader, a great leader. And also, he never missed. He never missed. He was always there. He was our rock. And we depended on him. We followed him for everything. And uh, he knew what was going on, even way at the back of the section. We used to to kind of laugh about the fact that Ray has eyes in the back of his head. He yeah. He always knew what was going on. He got that job when he was like 25 or something like that, wow. right out of conservatory, basically. So he was outstanding. And if something happened, he intuitively knew if there was going to be some kind of a train wreck, either in the orchestra or on stage or coordinating both of them together. And he would just use his violin and his bow to gesture and make sure that everybody stayed together. So that the concertmaster is the one that conductor relies on for everything in the orchestra and the entire orchestra relies on. Extremely important. You just sort of answered the question that was on my mind is because this person, during a performance anyway, is sitting there looking, you know, in that seat, he's shaking the hand of the conductor. But he's playing the violin, or she's playing the violin during things. And, but somehow, while doing his part as a violinist, able to pull things together, I, I, that, that to me is incomprehensible. I don't understand how that could possibly work. It's an extraordinary ability that very few people have. And Ray was one of those who had that capability. A lot of it is intuition, but you also have to be a master at your instrument to be able to do all those things at once. Yeah, It's just, um, and I've been concertmasters in various orchestras, and I know what it's like. And that appreciation made it even more compelling for me to be able to watch Ray and see how he did that job. All the conductors, Levine especially, absolutely so respected what Ray was doing hour after hour, day after day, year after year. But all the conductors knew that in Ray Nevik, they had a true, great, truly great concertmaster that they could depend on. I am so glad to hear you express that about him and, and explain about concertmasters in general, because I had in my head that this was a very important person, definitely during the preparation period rehearsals. I didn't realize what an active role they played keeping things together during performance as well. Yeah, there have been performances where the conductor has spaced in some way or another, and it was always Ray. At one point, I remember he even got up on the podium and started conducting with his bow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Again, it's the kind of thing that can happen during a performance spontaneously, you know, but Ray was always there. He never missed whenever he was needed, whether it was in a normal circumstance or extraordinary circumstance. He was there. Fascinating. Yeah. I have one other uh, character or one other position in the in the orchestra to ask you about. 
one of the characters in this book is described as the orchestra personnel manager. <laughs> what is that role? I, that's not something I'd heard of before. That's another impossible job. Uh, there has <laughs> to be there has to be someone in the orchestra who knows everybody in the orchestra, who can what should I say organize everything. So the mm. personnel manager deals with conflicts and arguments between orchestra members has to step in in those in those situations the personal manager has to make sure that everybody's there the personal manager has to know what the conductor's desires and wishes are whether there's something that needs to be set up ahead of time if someone gets sick the personnel manager has to decide who the replacement is going to be it's um a really difficult job organizing rehearsal deciding especially since there's a rotation with the strings has to decide who's going to rotate where for which opera and it goes on and on and on this person has to be almost psychic to be able to do this job <laughs> you know yeah good people she, skills i imagine would be an asset also yeah and and they're not always i mean there's it seems like to me when I look back, it's almost every day there was some kind of situation. Yeah. A last minute, you know, someone calling in sick or somebody starting an argument in, you know, the locker, in the men's locker room and, and the personal oh. manager has to step in and, you know, it, all of these things. So very important person. And usually they also have to play. Now, the last oh. personnel manager who was there when I was at the Met, eventually gave up um, his position in the orchestra to just do the managing full-time because really it's hard to be able to think about it. Yeah. If something happens, you have to get up in the middle of the performance and go deal with it. It's right. better that you're not performing. So for the most part, I guess lately, it's probably someone who either plays very little, like a percussion player or even a bass player, a trumpet player, not as much as like a violinist or principal oboe or flute or something like that. But yeah, very important job, very difficult job. And yet I kind of satirized it in the book because <laughs> yeah. all, we orchestra players have a very mixed relationship with the personnel manager. I imagine. But it's always going to be an accomplished musician in that role, even if they're not actively playing. Either. Yeah, it starts out with someone who is in the orchestra. It has to be someone mm -hmm. in the orchestra, unless they've changed it since. But I don't think so. I think the person really has to know all of the foibles, shall we say, of mm -hmm. uh, every orchestra member. And the best way to do that is to be a member of the orchestra. Sure. You couldn't just walk in as a generic manager. <laughs> Not quite. Okay. I have another question that, that's come up in a few of the comments you've made, this concept of rotation. Mm. And that just happens in the string section. And is it just, it's my turn to be closer to the front or... Tell us how that works, because when you look at an orchestra, it is overwhelmingly strings. It is. There are more strings than any other instrument, and that's the reason you need a rotation. And it, this is where the personnel manager, I think, has the most difficult part of that job. Mm. Every opera requires a different number of players. Right. In the winds, brass, percussion, and strings, all of them, the string players play more than anybody else. When you think about it, we're mm -hmm. playing all the time. Percussionists yeah. come in and out, even the brass players come in and out. Also, a string players are responsible for learning every single opera. The wind players rotate in that 
especially in the principal winds, you'll have somebody responsible for X number of operas and then the associate principal responsible for different operas. So they don't play as much as the string players do. So they have to hire extra string players because of the number of performances. So if you think about it, say there's six performances a week and there are certain number of string players and we're only responsible for playing four performances a week. So when you think about it, you need extra players to fill in those gaps. And it's really complicated. I think they do it by computer now, where you figure out who is going to be <laughs> off a certain performance or even a rehearsal, and who do you need to bring in to take that person's place. And then everybody else moves up as the extra person comes into the back of the section. And it's really uh, complicated. But yeah, yeah, you need that rotation because you have more performances then you have people to play them. Yeah. Wow. And the rest of the time, you have to supplement that with extra players. So it really does take a computer to figure out who's going to be playing which performance, which night of which opera. Sure. And then filling, filling in the gaps. And if someone gets sick, then it gets even more complicated. Then, you know, you have frantic phone calls from the personnel manager's office trying to get someone at the last minute. It's you have no idea what goes on back there. No, I can only imagine. I would not envy anybody mm. in that job. It's a really difficult job. And everybody gets mad at the personnel manager, too. So what can I say? <laughs> That's why you satirized him. In the no, I guess I did. Yeah, I couldn't help that one. It was, it was a gentle satire, though. Very much so. There was an appreciation for the fact that he has a lot going on. And he also has higher aspirations or frustrated aspirations in his own musical career. Well, and one of the characters in the book, one young, another young woman, Julia's roommate, is an alternate. So I imagine she's one of the people getting the frantic phone calls when somebody can't perform. She is, but also in Wagner and Strasshoppers, where you automatically need more people. That's who you call. Yeah, that's who you call. Or you actually, you can predict how many extra people you're going to need. So you hire that person from the get-go. And then mm. if somebody cancels out for any reason, then come the frantic phone calls. But yeah, you have to start with a much bigger string section in a Wagner Strauss opera and also, of course, winds. So you're going to get people from outside the orchestra too. When you have, for instance, Massenet's Werther, which has a saxophone in it. You know, there's no actual saxophone player in the Met Orchestra. You have to hire someone from outside. But, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the American Federation of Musicians, Local 802, has a a huge stock of players that can be called upon, and they're all fabulous. I mean, New York is just filled with wonderful musicians. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised to hear that. Well, I'm going to take us back to some uh, music conversation, direct music conversation. The book starts out this opening night. It's Don Carlo, Verdi's Don Carlo. And I believe it's Don Carlo is the Italian version as opposed to the French language version yes, of that. Yes, we opera. always did the Italian version back then. Yeah, yeah. And can you explain why you picked that opera to highlight as the opening night number in this book? Or does it have any special meaning for you? Or you just love Verdi? All of the above. I love Verdi. And Don Carlo is not only one of my favorite Verdi operas, but it's also one of the operas on my top five list. I absolutely worship that piece. It's, it's such an incredible masterpiece from beginning to end. 
And it also has a scene that directly impacts the story. I don't know if you want, it, it's a bit of a spoiler alert, but uh, there's a scene, a violent scene in this opera that when I was thinking about, okay, which opera should I use for this nefarious thing that happens toward the beginning of the book, Don Carlo came to mind because there's mm. a perfect scene that coordinates with that particular violent happening that goes on. And so I thought, you know, the words that they're singing are perfect for that moment and the violence that goes on and the music is so incredibly dramatic and it builds and builds and the conductor gets more and more excited and it just seemed absolutely perfect. And also that opera has a great deal of meaning for me because when I was going through some difficult crises in my life, toward the beginning, it was in the first few years that I was in the Met Orchestra, and I totally identified with the music. It literally would make me cry as I was playing. Oh, wow. Because it was so incredibly beautiful, but also so poignant what goes on in so much of that opera that uh, it has great meaning for me. And that opera also was a new production and Domingo was singing and Scotto was singing and they were both so incredible. They did such amazing job portraying those characters and the suffering that they went through, which it felt parallel to the suffering that I was going through. So especially the aria in the third act of King Phil, Ella Jamai Mamo, which is just to me the pinnacle of what you can do with an opera aria. All of that, I just related to it in such a huge way. So it all came together when I was planning that first violent scene in the book. It had to be Don Carlo. It couldn't be anything else. And that very same aria is referenced in the book. One of the characters who suffered a great personal loss plays that when he wants to go there and feel those profound emotions about someone he loved. Yeah. So let's listen to some of that great bass aria as sung by Cesare Siepi in this case, where he's playing the king and he is so bereft. She'll never love him. She will never love him. That is a terrible thing to come to grips with. And Verdi wrote it so perfectly that I don't know anybody who isn't deeply affected by it.
listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast, where you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm Pat Wright, your host, and I am here today with author, award-winning screenwriter, lecturer, arts journalist, and so much more, Erica Miner. Erica, welcome back for the second half. Thank you, Pat. Erica, before we get started into some more of the nitty-gritty of opera, could you tell us how to 
find you and some of your work? Do you have a website or any other points of contact? I do. I have a website, ericaminer.com. You can find almost everything about me there, but also I am very active on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, so you can find me there. I'm constantly posting. I actually have a special group on Facebook for Aria for Murder. Oh, wow. And I try to post there as often as I can, especially when I get a nice five-star review, of which I've gotten two so far, so I'm delighted about that. Congrats. And uh, if you look on any of those sources, you can find all about me. Okay, and that's minor, M-I-N-E-R. Yes, not the musical minor, the coal minor. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. However appropriate that may be. Hmm. In the pit. I did work in the mines after all, yes. (laughs) That's good. Well, usually, right as we start the second half, we have what we call an opera for everyone land, the opera helmet quiz, where we review the plot thus far in the opera that we're discussing. Not appropriate for today's conversation, But it occurred to me, as we were listening to that other music at the end of the first half, that there's another kind of opera helmet quiz that you have pretty much set up for me, knowingly or not. When we were talking about Don Carlo, you said that that was one of your top five favorite operas. And would you mind playing along if I try, based on my reading of (laughs) Aria for Murder, do you think I could try to guess... I could be dead wrong, but based on that reading, I'd love to try to guess what some of the other top five are. I'd love to hear your attempt. (laughs) I think it would be very interesting. Whether you're right or not, it'll still be interesting. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm going to say, besides Don Carlo, which you've already told us, so there's four more I need to guess. I'm going to say, based on the fact that more than any other opera, the quotes at the front of each chapter come from Don Giovanni. There's so many Don Giovanni quotes that we read. I'm going to say Don Giovanni is one. Am I right? And I will reply that for me, Mozart is in a different category. I don't even Ah. categorize his operas with anybody else's. So in a way, you're absolutely right. But pretty much any Mozart is my favorite. The list is apart from that. Okay, the list is apart from that, but no no black mark for my my effort. No, good effort. Thank you. (laughs) All right. I am going to say, because it is not only used in the quotes at the top of chapters, but talked about and sections are quoted from Tosca, that that's on the list. Uh, It is not, actually. (sighs) Strangely enough, uh, I've probably played as many Toscas as anything else, also because I used to play for Boris Goldovsky's Traveling opera company and we did Tosca at one point for like solid for a month every night so I know the opera inside out but it's actually I'll give you a hint it's a different Puccini opera that's on the list it's a different Puccini opera on the list and is in fact my number one and it probably is not what you might guess but so I don't know that I have guesses based on the um oh it's not what I might guess so it's it's not Mm -hmm. But hmm. I don't want to get you off the track of the other ones, so. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so, so, um, I, Madam Butterfly. <laughs> no, that's what I would have guessed. That's what okay. I figured, but no. Yeah, okay, well, hmm. Girl of the Golden West, that's a not No, I actually, one. I adore that, and I give a lecture on that one, but that's not on the list either. Okay, we'll come back to Puccini. Something may 
jump out at me, but I don't, I mean, I'm just, those, they're random guesses, not based on the book. Okay, so I'm going to say based on the book, because two of the characters in the book say that this is among their favorites. Fidelio by Beethoven. You are correct. All right. Phew. I got <laughs> one. Um, and then I'm going to say Verdi's Rigoletto. Not quite. Not quite. Oh. No. Because it gets special mention. Yes. It is another Verdi. Yeah, it's another Verdi. Uh, uh, a Ballo. Ballo in Mascara. No, um, that's another. I, I love all these Verdi operas, but there is something. So many. <laughs> well, there are so many that are, are masterpieces, but there's something about this other Verdi that's really distinctive. Oh, dear. Trovatore. <laughs> I'm going dark there. No, I think I'm going to have to just give up and be happy with having gotten Fidelio. <laughs> Fidelio is, is major, uh, and I, you know, I do bring it up, but the other favorite operas don't really come up that much in the book because they're not as relevant to the story and to the plot line. Right. So, so so tell us, what's your Puccini pick? My Puccini is Manolesco. Oh, okay. Manolesco does something. It's actually my number one. And Puccini is not my favorite opera composer, but that opera does something to me that no opera, no other opera does. And it's almost oh. impossible to describe. But from the very first note, it just, it's so exuberant and it just lifts you up into the heavenly stratosphere. So that's my number one. Oh, yeah, and it takes you down low at the end, too. And it too. does, but everything <laughs> about it and the, the, the sheer melody of it, the fact that it was his first big mm-hmm. hit, that yeah. he was so youthful, and everybody said, okay, this is the one. We know now that he is going to inherit Verdi's you know, yeah. crown, and so he did. So that, but it's just... The music in that opera, the story, everything. I I read a number of translations of the book. I actually actually even read it in French. It's the story is just it, the irony is I think that Puccini captured that perfectly in this opera. So yeah, oh, and I and I re, I relate to the character. So yeah, that's number one. Mm-hmm. Another one, and the rest are in no particular order. Eugene Onegin because I just simply oh. cannot stand how beautiful it is. Yeah, it is exquisite. It really is. The first time I played it, actually the first time I rehearsed it, I had never heard it before, which is considering the fact that my my parents are from the Ukraine and we had Russian music going on in the house all the time. I had never heard the opera, just the ballets, of course. Right. And I was in the ladies' dressing room and I heard over the PA system one of the harpists, or maybe even both harpists, were practicing the opening, oh. which you hear as the, as Tatiana and her sister are starting to sing. And I heard it, and I was I said to a colleague, "My goodness, that's beautiful!" And she said, "Oh, have you never heard this before?" And I said, "No, I never had." But at, from that point on, I was hooked. So, that's on the list. That's a special one then. Okay, and then we've got another Verdi. One more, one more Verdi, Falstaff. Falstaff. Well, I would not have any clue as to guessing that one based on the book. So no, no, but it's just when I finally got a chance to play it, I also I had heard it on recordings, but that one I would say is the most fun to play for violin of any of his operas. Why is that? Well. He, he throws in so many tricky but really challenging passages 
that are mm -hmm. so fun to play. You have to practice them a lot, but once you've got it, man, so fun to play. The pace is relentless. I mean, it just from the first chord and then you're off and running for the entire opera. And some of the melodies are so glorious, like the duet between the two lovers at yeah. the beginning of, of the last act or mm -hmm. the second scene. It just, everything about Falstaff, it's like I w recently read that speaking of San Francisco, one of the writers for, um, I think it was San Francisco Culture Online, mm -hmm. he said he felt that this opera is proof that there is such a thing as a perfect opera. And it is. It absolutely Fall stuff. is. Now, I've not heard that before. Wow, oh, that's... God, just love it so much. It, again, okay. it's like Manolesco. It's so energetic and it, uplifting, and it, it's Shakespeare, so you get everything, of course, because right. Shakespeare gives you everything. So Yeah, you have good material to start with. But, but so interesting that you picked Puccini at the beginning of his major career and Verdi with Falstaff at the end. Yeah, strange. I'm, I'm, I'm a strange animal. What can I say? Well, no, but you've got so much experience with these. I'm, I know there are good reasons for it, but I mean, and I'm sure you, the others are fine too. Well, and it's fun <laughs> to think of, of course, there are all these auxiliary ones that are like, oh, wait a minute, but the, there's Rigoletto and Ballo, and wait a minute, there's, you know, but those really are the pinnacle for me. They stand at okay. the top. Okay, so I got a middling grade on the opera helmet quiz, but I am still going to hold my head up high. <laughs> you absolutely have no reason not to. <laughs> well, I want to get back to talking about opera things that I'm intrigued by that come out of uh, your mystery book, which will say once again, it's a Julia Kogan opera mystery, part of a series that's going to be coming out as the months and years go by aria for murder but one of the things that is discussed very briefly in the book is presented very briefly in the book is that julia carries around libretto a libretto for well in the case in the book it's tosca but she says it's important for the violinists even to know the words because i've i've chatted with other musicians who say you know i don't really focus so much on the plot and the details of the opera but here you have julia saying in opera words and music are equally important abel her mentor always taught me that and the character who's hearing her say this is a little surprised because he didn't think that was necessary or important i think it is first of all i learned opera by studying the libretti listening yeah. to recordings and going along with the words because first of all i love languages and also i mean wagner was right you know singers orchestra equally important music and drama equal and so to me when i'm playing on stage with the symphony orchestra that's a whole different story but when you're doing an opera so much of the music if not all is just a reflection of the emotion that happens to be going on in that certain passage. And to me, as a player, the more you know about that and the more you can reflect on it and identify that, I think the better you will perform it. Uh, I love conductors who point that out. There are certain conductors who will stop and say, you know what's going on here. Line surf used to do that a lot. 
Oh, and interesting. But And they don't all do that then? No, very few actually, because there's limited rehearsal time and you know sure. you have to set your priorities. But I always loved it when they would tell us what's going on, especially in a language that I don't know. I mean, I know I'm fluent in French and Italian, uh, German, not so much. And so in a German opera, you don't, I don't always know, I do now, now that I've been studying them after leaving the Met, but you don't always know what's going on. And when you're playing something like the first act of Valkyrie, when these two twins find out eventually that they become lovers, mm. the, the, the music of that, and of course you, the way Wagner weaves in the leitmotifs, it's so important to know what is going on between these two characters because it sets the tone for the entire rest of the ring. So yeah, right. I think it's it's really important. Not that I used to walk around with a libretto the way Julia does, but <laughs> it was always important for me, having studied opera first on recording with libretto, to right. know what the words mean. I think it's it's really, really key. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a it's a lovely way that you work that into this story as part of her character. Thank you. Oh, of course, of course. Well, speaking of your talent in writing, I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about how you moved from being a violinist for 21 years at the Metropolitan Opera to becoming a, a writer and a lecturer? It certainly was a journey, but it actually started in childhood because when I was in elementary school and I grew up in Detroit, and back then, 100 years ago, they actually had money for education in Detroit. And so I was very lucky that one teacher, they had an after-school program of, of various kinds, one teacher put me into a class for creative writing. And this was way before I even started playing the violin. Ah. And uh, he, he or she must have seen a spark of some kind. And that was one of the great experiences of my life because I discovered what it was like to create storylines and characters and weave them all together to tell stories. I didn't realize until then that I love telling stories, as you can probably guess from Yes. what we've said so far. I just, I've always loved telling stories. So the writing started way, way back then. Hmm. And even when I was at the Met, I tried to take writing classes whenever I could fit them into my schedule. So writing has always been very important to me. And it seemed, what happened was, unfortunately, one day when I was coming home from rehearsal, somebody crashed into me and I suffered oh. a number of injuries, some of which turned out to be permanent, so especially with my hands and wrists. So I was unable, even though I tried, I was in therapy of various kinds for a year and a half after that, but mm. you know, the Met schedule is so grueling, especially as, as a string player, you're playing, yeah. you can play eight hours a day, and it just became impossible. It was just too painful to continue. Oh, wow, I'm so sorry. So I had to give up the Met, and believe me, that's not a decision that's taken lightly at all. Yeah. But once I realized that's what I needed to do, it seemed the logical next step or next part of, of a career to go back to my writing. And I just started writing about everything. And I, I got more concentrated in my screenwriting classes and in my writing classes. And the next thing I knew, 
I was writing screenplays and novels, and it just kind of went from there. So, and I've been doing it ever since. No, congratulations. I mean, it's it's all, you have a body of work already, right? A, oh my goodness. A nice body of work. Well, yeah, not only novels and screenplays, but also uh, quite a bit of poetry, which is usually the way people start. And uh, I have two novels that are based on my journals that I kept while I was at the Met, one at the Uh Met while I was in high school, the other one. And I've, if you look on my website, if you click on articles, the link at the top, you'll see, I have lost count of how many I've written interviews, reviews, all kinds of different artists, but especially focusing on opera. But Whenever I would go to, and I write for Broadway World. Yes. And Backtrack and other websites that are well-recognized. But like, if I went to Boston to lecture, I would go to a Boston Symphony concert and write a review, you know. So I've been reviewing from one coast to the other, and yeah. uh, I have a body of work there that's pretty substantial as well. So I kind of never stop. Well... We're grateful that you took a little time out of all of that to talk today with an opera for everyone. It's fabulous. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> um, well, I got to see some of your lecture topics, and I was very intrigued that one of the topics you speak on is when opera meets Hollywood. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of people maybe, I don't know, maybe this is an assumption that's not true, but I think a lot of people are familiar with Ride of the Valkyries. That shows up a number of places, probably most famously in Apocalypse Now. But I bet you've got more on your list than that. Well, because I've done extensive lecturing on this subject, there are quite a number of films. You wouldn't believe how many films have opera music. But uh, there's one list that I have, which I start with, which is these are opera arias that movies can't live without. So I have a list aside from Ride of the Valkyries, which also, by the way, appears in the Blues Brothers, you may not have known. Oh, no, there's so much music in there. I've missed it. Oh, that scene is absolutely hysterical. I mean, you can find it online. You should go look. But the first on the list is actually Nesundorma from Turandot. And that is a great piece for spy thrillers. Evidently, those movies like Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation has major, major scene that takes place in an opera house, which is so much fun. Assassination attempts and all that. So that that's a use of opera music where it's a clear to the audience that this is something that's taking place. The music is being played in an opera house. It is. But that's not always, I mean, yes, that does, that definitely happens. I'm thinking of um, Pretty Woman, there's scenes in an opera right. house. There are a number. Also in Woody Allen's Love and Death, a, a very hysterically funny scene, Magic Flute. But here's an example of an aria in a movie that has nothing to do with the scene it's in, and that is in The Untouchables huh. with Sean Connery and um, Robert, Robert De Niro playing Al Capone. And the scene of this, it's a very violent scene where you hear Vesti La Juba and it's brilliantly coordinated with this violent, one violent action, bloody, grisly action after another. So that's an interesting choice. Vesti la Juba from Pagliacci for that scene. Wow. On the other hand, comically, there's La Donna Immobile from Rigoletto is in a comedy with Nicolas Cage called The Family Man, in which he actually, you know, of course, his uncle 
is his real name was Coppola. His uncle is Carmine Coppola. So he grew up with opera. Nicolas Cage really knows, puts a lot of opera in his movies. But this one's hysterical because after, in the scene, after cheating on his wife, then he literally sings. He sings, and you know because it's really bad. He sings this (laughs) aria, La Donne Mobile, while he's prancing around his bedroom in his underwear it's quite hysterical so yeah it's kind of close to the actual character but in a in a wonderfully comical way that's fascinating because you've at first when you describe it and and you know that i'm not going to translate this exactly but i'll get it pretty close where the the song is saying that a woman is fickle a woman changes her mind a woman is flighty and not to be trusted to be Mm -hmm. faithful Mm mm-hmm and then this guy is singing this after cheating on his wife. That's yeah. it, it seems in contrast. And yet, if you know the character in the opera, mm-hmm. it's a pretty good fit. Very much in character. I, I thought it was brilliantly done. Yeah. And for those of you who don't remember how it goes, trust me, you know the tune. Let's play a little clip of it right now. This is Carlo Bergonzi with the chorus and orchestra of La Scala, singing on a recording that was made in 1964. <laughs> I just love that song. What a tune, huh? Once it's in your head, it doesn't leave. Absolutely not. And the three tenors proved that. They did indeed. They did. And what a character. What a character that is. But I think that you probably know some more opera music prominent in Hollywood films. Oh, there's so much. It's such a rich subject. But uh, one of my favorite is, of course, The Dance of the Hours from La Gioconda in Fantasia, which is 
hysterically yes. brilliant and brilliantly hysterical. But there's also, <laughs> this might be somewhat of a surprise, believe it or not, mm-hmm. the mad scene from Lucia appears in a dystopian science fiction movie called The Fifth Element. Oh my goodness. And it actually is in the future, but there's an opera house, strangely enough, and on the stage. <laughs> opera indoors. <laughs> uh, yes, forever. There is an alien, a female alien, very strange and weird looking, who's singing the mad scene from Lucia. And <sighs> you wouldn't think of an alien showing these kinds of emotions, but it's the expressions on her, their face are absolutely stunning. And the the um, not only the facial expressions, but the hand gestures, everything. And I was unable to find out actually who the actual soprano was singing this. But oh. if you see it, you, it's astonishing. First of all, there are opera houses, there were people, mm. the place was crammed with people, and she was singing the mad scene on stage, an alien. Go figure. That's it's amazing. The science fiction makes me think. It's not technically opera, but it makes me think of 2001 Space Odyssey when they play some of the Strauss music, that very famous right. Strauss music from Thus Spake Zarathustra. That became famous after they used it in the film, really. I, I actually saw it in concert not too long ago, and it was just... It, it almost takes you out of the moment because it's so, I mean, it's it's like a meme of its own before the word meme existed. The right. da, 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 da. Everybody knows it. Every, everybody my, knows it. My two-year-old son sang it. I mean, everybody. Yeah, you. but you you know, I knew it before I even knew who, who Richard Strauss was. Right. And that, um, it's just amazing. And I, I feel like... Um, Puccini, a lot of times when I just hear snatches of his, orca- you know, the music before the singers come in or after they've stopped singing, it sounds very cinematic to me as well. It absolutely is. And in fact, any number of composers stole from Puccini. You mean film score? Hollywood composer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And not only that, but speaking of La Fanchula del West, the girl of the Golden West, Andrew Lloyd Webber, if you listen to certain parts of that Puccini opera. You can hear where he stole. In fact, the Puccini, oh, Puccini's family sued him for plagiarism, yeah. yes, ah. because it is so close as to be almost exactly the same. Well, maybe that's why I, I particularly remember thinking that listening to Girl of the Golden West that it sounded like movie music to me, but I hadn't, I didn't know that well, story. Well, it, I... it, it was the original <sighs> yeah. Italian Western. Well, yeah, it did premiere in New York, so it was his American opera. It was American, but this is no question that it it inspired any number of uh, spaghetti westerns. Yeah, yeah, and that music is perfect. But so there was a a, a lawsuit. Do do we know how it resolved? We don't know. They never revealed it to the rest of the world, but I imagine they probably settled. Well, I guess that's why we don't know. Because he has more money than God, so... So another one that comes to mind is the habanera from Carmen. Yes, that is so universal as to be used probably in more films even than The Ride of the Valkyries, the habanera from Carmen. Everything from Bad Santa to Magnolia to my favorite example, the movie Up, which I adore. And the way it was used in that movie where he's using that 
elevator stair climbing thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so poignant. It's so sad. And yet it's also very comical. I mean, you can't help but chuckle at that one. The composer, yeah. Giacchino, Michael Giacchino, is a, he's won a screenplays for his soundtracks. And this one is just as brilliant, if not more so, than all of them. All of them. I think he really did a brilliant thing putting that music, which has nothing to do with the actual scene that you see in the movie, and yet it seems so appropriate somehow. Yeah, no, it it works for this man who's lost his wife and trying to carry on. It just that, That's why it's poignant. Opera music knows how to grab your emotions. It well, absolutely does. Yeah, I mean, these, these screenwriters and these Hollywood composers are very smart. They all come from classical background, classical music, they know what they're doing, they're classically trained, and they use opera examples to enhance the images that we see on the silver screen in a way that's so emotional because actually, you know, film is all about emotion and opera is all about emotion and they're a marriage made in heaven. That's true, that's true. Well, we had operas long before we had film. Indeed. Makes sense. Well, I happened to find among my CDs here while we were talking a copy of Carmen, and it has the Habanera recorded in Paris in 1959 and sung by Victoria de Los Angeles. Say, Lord, 
that's another tune that stays with you and, and another opera tune that people know the tune and don't necessarily know it's opera. Well, it's the most popular opera ever, and you hear it on the stage. We also hear it in elevators as music. It's just universal. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Bizet, for the habanera and Carmen. Merci. <laughs> yes, merci. Merci I want to go backstage again with you and uh, and Julia from the Julia Kogan Opera Mysteries. And besides what you've described as the hazards that can happen with scenery falling on stage and things like that, you also mention other hazards uh, that, that, that are, I think, probably real-life hazards that you've encountered. I mean, there's there's a, a one of the plot lines involves drugs as they're reaching various people. One of the things you mention is a hazard for violinists, the, the jaw-clenching problems. Mm. And it's just referred to very briefly. But when I read it, I think, oh, this is written by a violinist who knows what she's talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately, I myself have not experienced that, but any number of my colleagues had anything from a mild to very extreme experience with that. And just think about it. If you have TMJ Mm. and you have a violin or a viola under your chin for six hours, that can be extremely, extremely painful and unpleasant. So I I don't envy that. That's only one of the many hazards, one other hazard that we all, all of us string players encountered was muscle and joint pain. So when you think about it, when you play a stringed instrument, like the violin or viola, you've got that arm up, you've got one arm up, you've got another arm holding the violin, each one is doing something entirely different, but you have to somehow coordinate them into one creation. That can really lead to neck, shoulder, low back, Wrist, I mean, you name it. And so all I can say about that is that the chiropractors in New York do a very good business with musicians. I bet they do. That's how we get we get the kinks out. Yeah. We have to. Yeah. yeah. And I also noticed in the book, Julia has a set of small weights on her bookshelf that she uses to sort of stave off any problems. She's young and trying to keep it, keep it all good. Another hazard that she encounters in the book, Julia, is she steps on a nail and she's so angry, she blurts out, this place is like a hazardous waste site. That, again, had the ring of experience to it. Well, yes. When you're in a place like a theater, and it, it's any theater, not just the Met, a Broadway theater, whatever theater it is, that has to do with the stage, you're in a construction zone. A lot of the time, these stagehands are hammering yeah. nails and doing all these kinds of things. And sometimes it can't be helped. The stuff ends up in the pit. So someone's going to step on a nail. Fortunately, most of them don't go all the way through your shoe. But I do remember one. I had one particularly, and I was very fond of him, particularly (laughs) noble colleague who would never call in sick and never go home sick. He was determined. He had this German work ethic, so he was determined to always be reliable. Well, one day he encountered a splinter the size of your computer screen. It was a huge piece of wood that was sharp at the end, and somehow he got it in his thumb. Oh, that hurts to just hear it. (laughs) Yeah, looking at it, I was like in pain. And we said, 
just go home. I mean, you can't play that way. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to go to the, you know, there's always a doctor around. There's mm. a, a place where you can go for accidents and that kind of stuff. I'll have them take it out and I'll be fine. I'm like, no. Oh. But sure enough, that's exactly what he did. I mean, he was really uh, quite the strong, strong personality. He wow. was determined that he was not going to show any weakness whatsoever, and he got the thing out, and it looked terrible, and it must have been incredibly painful, but he got through the rehearsal. Wow. Violinist also? Violinist, yeah. Oh, I can't even imagine. I can't. I mean, that's, wow. Yeah. Wow. But that's what happens when you've got stagehands constructing and deconstructing things all the time. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because they're, I mean, I guess the one little glimpse that a person like me gets is when you watch those Met HD in the theater presentations, mm -hmm. a chunk of what you see during the intermissions is the, the work that the stage crew is doing to change the set. And it always amazes me because, you know, in my head, they just wheel something in and wheels. But there's there's hammers going on. No. There's all kinds of construction happening yeah. between acts. Exactly. Before and after as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of the violin, a couple of things I wanted to mention. There's a few scenes where her pegs are talked about because I think she's got an old violin, Julia, and they're a little fussy. Is that that's something you've encountered? That's based on my experience. It's ideal to have an old Italian violin, but the right. pegs over time, especially if it's humid and damp, they mm. expand and they get kind of stubborn and they get hard <laughs> hard to, to turn and so I've had that experience myself and so I kind of based that on my own experience when I just didn't know what to do about it and instead of going and getting new pegs which would involve giving up my violin for however long and using a substitute or whatever I just had my stand partner turn them for me <laughs> Oh, just like in the book. Just like in the book. And he always complained, just like in the book. And uh, it's it's just a lot of fun. I, I try to inject little bits of wry humor whenever I could, because it's a mystery. You've got to have that. Otherwise, it's just too noir, you know? Yes, yes. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move back to poignant here. When Julia is reflecting on her growing up with her father being, as you explained, your own father had done as well, being at all her rehearsals and lessons. One of the pieces that is mentioned a couple of times is the Massenet's meditation from Thais. Mm -hmm. Can you speak about that a little bit? Because the way it's presented, I'm not a violinist. It seems like this is a very important piece for a violinist. It really is one of the benchmarks for a violinist. And I honestly don't know if the composer Massenet realized that what he was creating was a standalone piece that kind of showed what a violinist was made of. But it's, on the surface, it doesn't sound like it's that difficult, but it really is to interpret it in a way that reflects, I mean, it's right in the middle of the opera that he puts this piece and everything yeah. kind of stops. And when we did it, and again, Ray Nevik was concertmaster, he got to literally stand up and play the piece standing up in the pit while it was transitioning in between scenes of the opera, Thais. And that's got to be pretty scary stuff. To all of a sudden, everything kind of dies down. You stand up, you're playing this piece that goes from the bottom of the range to the top of the range, and you have to have the most incredible 
bow control you can imagine because your bow is going to start shaking and you have to keep it everything calm and focused very very difficult but when it's done right it's absolutely glorious piece well just to get a little flavor of the violin playing in this meditation i happen to have a copy of thais right here and this is one that was recorded in 1976 with the new philharmonia orchestra conducted by lauren mazel and from what i can tell he's also the solo violinist here i've read that it's one of his signature pieces it's entirely possible he was such an incredibly talented, gifted musician. He started conducting when he was like nine years old or something crazy like that. Wow. So he does, he, I should say, he passed away a few years ago, but he did opera, he did symphony, he pretty much did it all. So I wouldn't be surprised. Well, just a little touch of the meditation from Thais by Massenet.
exquisite. So nice to hear the violin featured that way. What a what a beautiful piece. It's gorgeous. It's that's the way to make a violin sing. Yes, yes, yes. Because so often we hear violins in large groups, which is magnificent as well. But this is a different a different thing. Much different and very refreshing. I'm very grateful to Masne for having written that. Yeah, yeah. There's probably a story behind that, but huh, another day, another day. Another day. <laughs> well, speaking of stories, you must have more stories for us. I pretty much have an endless supply, which is it bodes well for the sequels to Arya for Murder. But yes. I have one really juicy one about Macbeth. I know it's a bit of a leap from Thais to Macbeth, but I think probably a lot of people have heard about this. It was a number of years ago. Mm. We were doing Macbeth, and you know what they say about Macbeth being bad luck? Oh, right. We're supposed to say the Scottish play. Yeah, the Scottish play, but that's okay. I, I'm not hesitant to say the name. <laughs> well, this production, it was somewhere around the mid-80s, mm-hmm. 83, 84, something like that. And it was with problems from the get-go. From the beginning, you name it, there was a problem of one kind or another. But the shocking thing was that during a broadcast, a radio broadcast, no less, some guy decided to throw himself off the balcony in the middle of the performance, although he did wait until the intermission to do the deed. You know what? You mentioned that in Aria for Murder. Yeah, of course, shocking. Yeah. And uh, it happened that I had the flu that day, and I was home listening to the broadcast. And the intermission went on and on and on. It was just silence, nothing but audience, little bits of noise. And I'm like, what's going on? Yeah. And I didn't find out until later that, yeah, once he jumped, they had to deal with that, and they had to make the intermission. I don't know, it was hour, hour and a half, whatever it was, but the show must go on. So even with that oh, happening, no. they still finished the opera. Can you imagine? I, You know, the Met just doesn't cancel. They just don't cancel. They just don't cancel. Again, a point that's made a few times in the book and where they recount, well, we did have to n- not perform during a snowstorm, but we didn't cancel. You know, the city canceled everything. That's the way it is. That's what happened. You know, that's life at the opera. I think there were some other stories that you mentioned, maybe some German language operas? Oh, well, there's always Wagner. Aside from Gütterdämmerung, Lohengrin Mm. was kind of a fun story in a way. When we did Lohengrin, um, my daughter was in the children's chorus. And in that production, they had the kids, they weren't singing, but they had them as part of Elsa's procession in the second act. And the kids were all dressed in white, looking very, very innocent in their white. And they all, each one of them, had to carry a lit candle Uh as they processed into the uh, (laughs) cathedral. And then once they got there, they had to stand there under the hot lights for like 45 minutes till the end of the scene. With a lit candle. With a lit candle. And uh, it was... It's pretty hard on a kid to sit under, to stand under hot lights and have a hot candle in their hand. And sure enough, during one of the performances, one poor girl fainted dead away. She just fainted. Oh, she was trying her best, poor thing. She, yeah, and, and 
Uh, this it's interesting because there's another button to the story. But of course, in true Met fashion, she was whisked off the stage before anybody really even knew what happened, especially anybody in the audience or even in the pit. We couldn't tell because that's they're professionals. They know what they're doing. But it turns out I asked my daughter about it years later, and I said, "So I've been talking about that incident during Lohengrin," and I said. Is there more to this story? And she said, well, yes, actually, because the younger kids, the younger girls all looked very young and innocent. But Mm. the teenage girls, in order for them to look young and innocent, they had to bind them. Oh, no. And that's what happened to the girl. She couldn't breathe and she fainted because her breasts were bound and she couldn't breathe. Poor I mean, thing. Poor thing. Yeah. It, yeah, it makes me think of the stories like we don't hear about people fainting a lot these days, really, but women used to faint a lot back in the days of yes. corsets. Well, this was kind of similar. You know, right. the kids all had to look very young and innocent, and the ones who were not as young and they're female, they, they paid the price, or this poor girl did. I mean, clearly she survived. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that happens. The amazing thing is that no one knew. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't tell because it was taken care of in a couple of seconds, basically. Right. But your daughter knew. Was she in other performances there? Yeah, she she was in Hansel and Gretel, of course, and Mm -hmm. also the Revelle L'Enfant Les Sortilèges. Tell us about that one. It's kind of hard to translate. Basically, it means the child and the magical supernatural beings. It's an opera, a one-act opera by Ravel. It was part of a triple, another triple bill with other French operas. But this was a scene where it's such a wonderful opera. I could go on and on about this opera. I first played it at Tanglewood with Leinsdorf, and then I got to play it at the Met, and I, I just love it. So the child is very naughty, and he goes around <laughs> destroying everything in his Oof. room and all of the animals outside and that kind of stuff. And his punishment is that they all come to life. The mistreated objects have come to life. You know, the clock, the teapot, the sofa. Oh, no. And, of course, make his life a misery. And uh, that's his lesson. But there's a scene where he literally rips the wallpaper off the wall, the wallpaper being shepherds and shepherdesses. Oh, no. So they had the kids dressed as shepherds and shepherdesses, and they were being pulled apart by this terrible, naughty act of the child. It's wonderful stuff. That sounds fascinating, and I don't think I've ever seen that live. That sounds really interesting. It's a wonderful opera. It's absolutely wonderful. And... uh, you can probably find it online. And speaking of Lauren Mazel, he has one of the best recordings of that opera as well. Oh, well, then I will look for it. Ravel only wrote two operas. They're both one act. One was this one, and the other one was called L'Heure Espagnole, or The Spanish Hour, which is absolute satire, hysterically funny, about Spain and, like, the 13th century or something like that. So, Oh, not a time I usually think of as being hysterically funny, but... <laughs> Oh, thank you. but thank you, Monsieur Ravel. <laughs> yeah, if you if you look it up, you'll see the story. I won't go into it now, but very clever, very funny, spectacular, spectacular. One of the other things I noticed in the book a couple of times there is a quote, attributed quote, from Beverly Sills that the characters mm. use, where they say, 
what a way to make a living. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm delivering it the way she did. And I don't even know if she put it in writing or imagine it was a conversation of some sort, an interview, who knows. But tell me about that quote and the fact that you use it a few times in the book. Well, it's a really fun story. And it actually happened at New York City Opera Mm. that uh, where my then husband was an assistant conductor and he conducted the backstage bandas. And there was one of these, probably Donizetti, one of the queen operas. The Tudor queens, yeah. The Tudor queens. It was probably Anna Bolena, or they used to call it Anna Bologna, which I thought was already oh. pretty funny. But, <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, when, when you're at the opera, you're constantly trying to make up funny stories for yeah. comic relief. So evidently, it was one of these operas where she was constantly going on stage, off stage, on stage, off stage, all evening long. And after her final exit... She came out to the backstage, to the wings, let out a huge sigh and looked around and smiled at everyone and said, ah, what a way to make a living. (laughs) So that's where that story came from. And I just could not resist using it. It's the actual quote. Oh, that is spectacular. What a way. Yeah, she was, she was something else. She was diva. She ran opera companies. She was a mother. I mean, she was... Amazing. And and the times that I met her, she could not have been more genuine. She did not have phony bone in her body. She was so gracious and so just sincere and friendly. It was she she was a delight and also a very strong woman. I mean, she'd have to be to do all that. Yeah, I, I love hearing this because since learning more about opera, I've known that she was important in bringing back those Tudor Queen operas and things like that. But before I even knew opera or classical music, because I wasn't really raised with those things, I knew who Beverly Sills was because she was a regular on the afternoon talk shows that my mother would watch when I was home. Right. And she would talk more than sing. I knew she was a singer because she would sing occasionally, but she she was just so engaging. And that's so fun to hear you talk about her that way as somebody who knew her. I mean, because I knew her as a, as a personality. She was the first opera person I could name in my entire life because she was on those afternoon talk shows. And she was so accessible, too. I mean, and she also, I remember once we did a gala performance on stage and she was the MC, And she was great at that too. This uh, dialogue between her and Lanting Price was hysterical. You want to hear that story? Yeah. Okay. I, yes, please. So, so she she was interviewing Leontine Price, and Leontine Price, who was one of the great divas of all time, incredible, incredible voice and presence, but she also was very vivacious, just like Beverly, and the two of them knew each other really well. Hmm. So here comes Leontine in all of her garb, glamour, you know, dripping from every pore, and she comes on stage, and they start chattering and she says to Beverly, Beverly, I've got to tell you what happened to me in Bloomingdale's the other day. And Beverly's, oh, (laughs) yes, do tell. And she said, well, I was at the cosmetics counter and I noticed there was a woman across the aisle who kept looking at me and smiling. So I looked at her and smiled back. And this went on and on for a couple of minutes. And finally, this woman got up the courage to approach me. She went up to me and she said, smiling, I know who you are. And Leontine said, oh, really? Tell me. And she said, you're Beverly Sills. (laughs) Spectacular. (laughs) Can you believe it? I mean, it was just one of those moments that you never forget. I love that. It's so funny, so ridiculous. And yet, you know, 
and both of them took it really well. They had a good laugh over that. That's, that's a fabulous story. It's a fabulous story. Well, Erica, I think we've come to the end of our time together. I can't believe it. It's gone so quickly. <sighs> what a shame. <laughs> I'm having so much fun. I thank you so sincerely for taking all of this time to be with us here on Opera for Everyone to explain so many things, to share your work, your memories, your stories. Thank you so much for being a guest on Opera for Everyone. Well, I thank you, Pat, because it's been a delight from beginning to end. I love, as you know, telling stories, sharing stories, and you make it so easy and so wonderful. I, I would do it again in a heartbeat, so thank you. Okay, well, I may take you up on it. <laughs> Let's go out on a little bit more of Erica playing the Mozart Sonata in B-flat. for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story, and a story set to music is even better. 
our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable, because we believe opera is for everyone. Mm -hmm.